0: This edition of Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy is going to focus on two of the driving forces behind KABF, community radio in Little Rock. Little Rock is very lucky to have Wade Radke and John Kane in positions to put together a radio station with so powerful a signal and such a dedication to the public and community that shines through in its very diverse programming. Carrie's first guest on this program is Wade Radke, lifelong community activist who in 1970 founded ACORN in Little Rock, Arkansas. And over the past 50 years, he's continued this kind of work. And currently, he's station manager of KABF Community Radio. You ready? Yes.
1: Fine. Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagAndBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into the commonalities of successful people and the ups and downs of risk-taking. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. Thank
2: you, Sun Gray. I am super excited and pleased to have my guest today, Wade Ratke a community and labor activist who, in 1970, founded the Association of Community Organizations for Reform, now better known
3: as ACORN.
2: Welcome to the table, superstar activist, socially conscious, Wade Ratke.
3: Carrie, I'm so glad to be here, because I also uh, act as station manager of KBF, and your show has just been a hit for us. Everybody is so proud of the work you all do. Really? Oh, yeah.
2: Thank you so much. Do you have it a secretary
3: no. or an assistant?
2: How do you do so much?
3: You know, the the key thing in terms of particularly international work is it wouldn't be possible without things like Skype, which is a free phone call system, email, which means that you can communicate very quickly with people, the fact that English has become... Uh, lingua franca in the world now so there are many people who know english uh, even in india india obviously english is a secondary language but kenya is also uh, my organizers in italy and france uh, all speak english so that's for me who's trying to barely get through on english that uh, makes a big difference but uh, you have to be well organized
2: you didn't even graduate from college did you
3: i left running
2: yeah you know i didn't graduate from college either you think you can do that today?
3: I think uh, they try to claim if you want to, you know, create a tech startup, want to be, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or something that, uh, you know, finishing school is a liability. I I don't know. You know, I was in school at a time where the world was changing in the uh, middle, late 60s, and you were either part of the problem or part of the solution. And by God, I thought the world was changing. If I didn't get out and do my part, uh, what was going to happen? And it turned out it was a marathon, not a sprint. And but once I had dropped out of school the second time to organize, it turned out this is something I could do. So I'd found my calling, and I didn't need to go back to school.
2: Well, that brings me to my first question. You were born in Laramie, Wyoming.
3: Laramie, Wyoming.
2: You grew up in New Orleans.
3: I, was, you know, went to high school in New Orleans, and was you- never going back. Uh, I was, you know, raised in the West. so That was too flat, and too hot for me, and then, uh, you know, in 1978, I moved uh, our national office from Little Rock to New Orleans, just because we were expanding so much in the U.S., you couldn't catch a plane in Little Rock oh, without to going that. to Memphis or Dallas, so it was, I was, we had to go somewhere, and it ended up in New Orleans.
2: And then you were schooled in Massachusetts.
3: Briefly, I went to, uh, I did two years off and on school in Massachusetts, Williams College.
2: And then you came Somehow to Little Rock and founded Acorn in 1970. What could have led you to Little Rock?
3: June 18, 1970. I had been working in Massachusetts uh, organizing welfare recipients who were trying to get, uh, achieve their rights and, and uh, against the stigma of being on welfare in the late 1960s. And the National Welfare Rights Organization was headed by a guy named George Alvin Wiley. He was a uh, a Ph.D. In, in physics who was uh, had been a professor at the University of Syracuse. He left uh, to be part of the civil rights movement as deputy director of CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality. And he founded, uh, around 1966, National Welfare Rights Organization. Well, the long story is they were trying to win adequate income. And he had raised some money in New York for what he called a southern strategy, because the two Congressional people that were key to increasing welfare benefits were Russell Long who was a senator in Louisiana at that time and Wilbur Mills in the second congressional district of Little Rock Arkansas, Arkansas yeah right so he knew I'd spent time in the South uh, he was speaking I was uh, running Massachusetts welfare rights at the time and he was speaking at Harvard and I saw I saw him you know about 20 feet behind it was a very bitterly cold night and he was uh, talking to my uh, woman who's my ex-wife and uh, i asked uh, her later well what was george talking about? he said it's, wouldn't you like to go back south because she was a new orleans girl you don't, you don't want to live in massachusetts do you well once i found out what he was talking about he was trapped he'd raised this money for a southern strategy and he didn't have anybody who was willing to go to the south I wanted to try this thing that was in my mind called ACORN, given the experience I had. I wanted to broaden it from welfare recipients to a large organization of low and moderate income families. So I talked to people in Georgia. Um, they weren't as interested. I looked at California. It didn't make sense. But uh, I talked to people here in Arkansas and they were enthusiastic about this idea of ACORN. So I told George, yeah, I'll go do this thing. So. June 18, 1970, I showed up to satisfy uh, their commitment to do something in the South and to, with George's blessing and the leadership's blessing at the time, to try this multi-issued, multi-constituency uh, organization, Acorn.
2: I don't think anybody realizes that Acorn was born in Little Rock, Arkansas.
3: Well, it's not something we're holding secret, but they may not put it out in the Chamber of Commerce news.
2: They should. <laughs> there should be actually a bust. Of you with a plaque talking about Arkansas and Acorn and what a great thing it is. Was At the Acorn's original was, was uh, Association for Community Organization for Reform now Acorn's original name.
3: Flying out of Little Rock the first time I ever came to visit and I'd never been here even though I'd lived in New Orleans. I started scribbling on the back of an envelope what possible names could be and I was looking for something that was a good acronym and something that people could draw and came up with ACORN. Originally, it was Arkansas Community Organizations for Reform Now, and then in 1975, when we expanded out, we just slipped that association in, and, you know, away you go.
2: I've heard that the A originally was for Arkansas. Absolutely. That Absolutely. should be on your plaque under your bust. I in your to think in
3: Little Rock where they would put that bus. I think we
2: should put it in the parking lot of Dreamland Ballroom when we get Dreamland up. Well,
3: there you go. And you better put a fence around because it could get rough around there. I mean, they, there's still people in Little Rock and around that Did see you... me just as a dangerous person.
2: <laughs> Were your parents service-oriented, or where does your social justice ambition stem from?
3: My mother was uh, from Drew, Mississippi. My father was from uh, Orange County, California. They met uh, during the war in the way that so many people, you know, they weren't that socially conscious. But the times that I was raised in, particularly it was an era of the civil rights movement, of. Um, you know, concern about Vietnam uh, and things like that. You had to make decisions in your life in the middle of nineteen, in the middle 1960s that you weren't necessarily prepared to make. So you
2: went from Laramie, Wyoming, to Mississippi, to New Orleans, to Massachusetts?
3: I went from Laramie to Wilson Creek, Colorado, to Rangeley, Colorado, to Irving, Kentucky, to New Orleans, and then I went to uh, Massachusetts.
2: Was your father in the service?
3: No, he worked for an oil company.
2: So how old were you when you became an
3: activist well i first dropped out of school to organize against the war when i was uh, nineteen and went back to school for one semester and then dropped out to organize with welfare rights when i was twenty and then i was twenty one when i started Acorn.
2: that's very young why oh do
3: you-, you know when you're that age you think you know everything it's that's only true. as you get older you realize oh my god i didn't know a damn thing and here i was uh, but, you know, yeah, it was. we really thought we knew something at 21 back in the 1960s.
2: Well, I think you're idealistic. Why do you think ACORN was so successful?
3: I think uh, we had a very uh, disciplined organizing model that was easy to replicate uh, in a lot of places in the country. The fact that it was based on membership who paid dues, uh, uh, like a labor union in the community, if you will, was very important. And I think... What we were trying to do attracted fantastic leaders and and organizing staff. So people wanted to to build a mass organization that uh, stood up and stood with uh, and had uh, created a platform for low and moderate income people to find their voice.
2: You know, I think it kind of was the time also.
3: Uh, There's no question. Because I
2: think people are uh, leery of institutions today. Sus- suspect of them.
3: Well, we were you building know. something new. I mean, I think in in a funny way, you'd like to believe that this particular moment right now can't tell, you know, where this might all lead to. I mean, it's not a movement. Uh, in the 60s, there was a real sense of movement, and I think Acorn benefited from uh, that sort of sense that more things were possible. This is a time where a lot of people don't think that much is possible, but. What we've seen just since the election certainly something different. There's a movement. There's a level of activism. People, you know, I see and hear from around the country, you know, if they're looking for 100 people, all of a sudden 300 people will be there. If they're looking for 300, 500. I mean, there's people really looking to participate in a different level. So whether or not there's, uh, there are organizational formations and people who respond to that now, I don't know, Carrie. But yeah. it just seemed like an opportunity to me.
2: Um. Yeah, I think people, maybe the grassroots way is a way to start again, because I think there's a diminishing trust in institutions. which Maybe why ACORN failed in the, in the 2010 that we were talking about is that, because ACORN had an excellent record for decades and did enormous amounts of good work and goodwill for lots of people. And I know it had to be disheartening. It was your brainchild, and it, Faltered in 2008. Did it make you want to quit on being socially active, or did it give you more resolve to work harder?
3: Uh, more of the former. I mean, I'm uh, the kind of person who goes to work every day. This is uh, difficult work, and there's no shortcuts uh, uh, than doing the work every day. So. Uh, i had left my work at acorn in the u.s sort of you know determined to do more on the international level as well as uh, the other project i was involved in and um, watching once you leave an organization uh, as i did as chief organizer of acorn uh, you really can't do much even when they're under attack i mean you can't jump back in you can't you know sort of whisper from the back I and mean, you've got to hope for the best and why can't you because uh leadership in uh, acorn had a governing board that was elected and uh, i had a lot of confidence in the leadership Um, they had made some decisions around staff management many of whom had worked for me 20 30 years so i had a lot of confidence uh, in them at the same time i think they got caught by a perfect storm and in some ways uh, once you they were wrong-footed in that storm, it was a level of attack. Uh, a lot of the people, I think it was disoriented for them. A lot of our friends and allies ended up not standing with them, whether in Congress or in financial and business sectors. Uh, a lot of the agreements we had with banks and others uh, because they were caught in their own problems in the bailout. Uh, it was exactly when the banking... Yeah, it was just sort of, you couldn't have asked for a worse confluence of events. And I, I just think building an organization is always a fragile and tenuous kind of, of enterprise. But in the the ACORN situation where you had an aggressive, direct action mass organization, it was never going to rank high on everybody's popularity poll. God love you for the nice things you've said already, Carrie. But we weren't going to win a contest for, you know, we would have been right there at the uh, in the Trump, uh, you know, popularity polls, 30 and 40 percent perhaps, except in our constituency where Acorn is still a golden name. If I go into neighborhoods where we organized uh, anywhere in the last, you know, 45, 50 years, it's, you know, welcome and hello and hugs and kisses and uh, when are we going to start again? But I just think once they'd gotten a couple of bad hits, they just couldn't get up fast enough. And then as some of the money became more difficult for them to manage. I'm not saying it was the same decision I would have made. I would have been foolish enough. I'm old school, I would have, you know, they used to have a, a, a rule in unions, the rule of seven, as long as there were seven, because when the union is on strike and you get beaten, there goes the union. But there's a rule in many uh, union constitutions that the rule of seven, as long as there were seven members still ready to pay dues and say there was a union, then you had a union and you could come back. I was more of that old school so I would have, I've often said if, if I'd still been running acorn when it went through the attack in 2009 and 10 I'd probably be the last person collecting the last10 dollars a month dues and um, would it have been different I don't know but the important thing is that you have to keep working for change. You have to keep trying to organize. You have to keep going to work every day. know How do you, you know stay, op- do you stay
2: optimistic? I do find sometimes that stuff after the 2008 banking crisis and the fall of ACORN, that sometimes I've, I do get a little listless and kind of think, what's it all about? And how do you stay motivated to keep striving for change?
3: Well, I think the important thing, people often used to ask me, well, what do I get for my dues? well, you get the opportunity to work together with other people and the opportunity to fight. You get the chance to fight for change. There's no guarantee you're gonna win. In fact, the whole notion of fighting for social change is you're gonna lose more than you win. So I was either foolish or lucky enough to always believe the odds were against us, uh, not for us. And in the first years in Arkansas, where I mean the first organizing committee we ever put together in Pine Bluff was broken up by the Klan. You what know, Boyce Alford uh, was a legislator from down in Pine Bluff. Uh, used to go in the legislature in the early 70s, demanding uh, resolutions be passed that you know, where we had to you know deliver our membership list to them. Well, you know, none of that was constitutional or legal, but it was all you know red baiting and oh you know the communist scourge and uh, you know the, they were all in the early 70s you know wild and foaming at the mouth, and that's just the way these things are. So I just had a different perspective. I mean, part of conflict is what comes with building an organization like an acorn. Not like a radio station or not like a coffee house, but certainly with an acorn, you know that you're in for a hard slog.
2: Are you still open to suggestions on new ideas?
3: Every day. I mean, if you're not learning, I mean, one of the, the exciting things about doing the work I do is uh, you literally learn something every day. Uh, you get to meet new people. You, if you don't, if you're not growing, you're dying. So if you're not adapting to new technology and new ways of doing things, uh, uh, you're not able to build organization.
2: You know, getting ready for this show, I was like, you know, they're doing this
3: show every week. Is
2: you know, it's kind of takes uh, some. On my interview
3: work. show, when people call me, and said. Like, fifty two weeks a year. I can fit you in sometime.
2: Yeah. 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 So you're you're like, you know, you have to do your homework. It's kinda like going to college. You're like, oh, I've got weight on. I've got to go do research and learn about weight. And every time I put it off and then when I do it and the show comes, I am so happy to do this show because I learn so much. I did not know Acorn was founded in Arkansas. I did not know anything about you until I read about it, and I'm
3: so inspired. I am a well-kept secret, and if you didn't have such a great show here, I would have been able to keep that secret longer. Wade Radke, community activist for
0: 60 years and station manager of KABF. As we look at the other side of the desk from KABF Community Radio, it's program director John Kane who for over half a century has been in Little Rock Radio, began at an AM radio station in Little Rock in 1960, and now is program director of KABF, John Kane,
2: Tell us how you came to be the program director at KABF Public Radio.
1: Once I determined to uh, do some positive things about things I never thought I could do things about before, but realizing that I had to change from commercial radio to public radio to do it. That was the beginning of a preservation initiative for me. It's how I became a preservationist bit by bit. But to start that, it was at KALO when I went and asked for a position, not to be described as a top 40 disc jockey, but realizing there was an opportunity there because although it was a small station, it was one of the first signals in the city, I think the first, about 1928, maybe 29. AM station, 1,000 watts in the daytime, 500 at night. So here I am, midnight to 5 a.m., doing basically the kind of programming that changed the perception of African Americans, mostly me, because I could reach out and get the product. People were looking for places to get that kind of stuff, black theater not, comedic stuff that made us look like buffoons, but... Stuff that really opened up their souls and they could express themselves. That's how I really got into radio. So the artist was the focal point, it wasn't about me. I'm basically an engineer at at night reading meters, but I got five hours.
2: On On the radio? On the radio.
1: I put everything in there you could imagine. Jazz, blues, rock, Captain Beefheart. I might play anything, but it changed the dynamics of top 40 radio. Before that, there were no ratings for nighttime radio. After Sonny Phillips and K-A-A-Y and those guys came on and they sh- cut back on the power at sunset, they assumed that there were no off- no no audiences out there. I wound up with a- with captured audiences, nurses, the professionals working at night, people up and about at night.
2: This is a great place to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about... John's life and hopefully get him to tell us some stories about the cultural revolution of the 1960s and 70s.
0: With different businesses slowly getting back to open hours for the public, you need help in encouraging your employees and your customers to stay safe by supporting social distancing. TheFlagandBanner.com has social distancing floor decals. See all the styles we have and the uses for them at FlagandBanner.com. And don't miss the 20% off in stock merchandise coupon code on the website. It's easy to find. And remember this if you're working from home and attending online meetings, FlagandBanner.com has the office backdrop you need to look professional and ready to work. TheFlagandBanner.com.
2: You're listening to Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with KABF's program director, Mr. John Kane. So, John, you already told me you were born in Wrightsville, Arkansas, but you haven't lived in Arkansas all your life. There was a time you did community theater and jazz preservation Mm -hmm. in, I think, I read Alabama and Georgia.
1: Birmingham, where I did most of it, darling. Yeah, Birmingham, Alabama
2: i want to tell our listeners that he calls me sweetie baby and darling every time you talk to him He's a hip cool cat from i'm waiting for him to say groovy from the 60s so all right how you had already gone into radio in the 1960s at what you call it k-a-l-o Yeah. Halo.
1: Mm-hmm. not Cokey. not koki I, I never went to koki
2: i talked i listened to koki and i listened to beaker street yeah. Liberty. I did,
1: too. I love Bigger Street, too. Mm-hmm. But Cokie didn't have much uh, intellectual stuff in my head. My head was getting like that Gary. Well, you're boring. a good
2: reader, and you'd seen the world. So, so really, Cokie was more intellectual. That's interesting. I mean, Kayla was more intellectual. That's interesting.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But you didn't stay. You came back to Little Rock in But 19. I stayed eight years. Eight years. Eight
1: years. It was eight years I got. Did community theater and all that preservation stuff.
2: Did you do any acting?
1: I was the chairman of the board of the Black Power Theater, so... I did You're always the chairman of the board somewhere. <laughs> I did a lot of fundraising, and I was good at producing because I just worked hard to, to get good shows and get musicians' gigs that were not there before. And so that jazz community started to grow. Man, it just impacted all of the other art disciplines. When I went down there, Carrie, I had a choice of living in the city Birmingham proper or other verbs. So what I did, darling, I wrote into the city every night five miles on a bicycle
2: just like you are today mm-hmm. and, and why so, did you do that
1: well I had to prove a couple of things to myself that I'm going to Birmingham Alabama and I really need to be just dedicated I couldn't rely on somebody else I had to do this the way I could do it I know I can do it and I just had to prove it to the people that was the easy part it did become uh, overwhelming as I started to interact with a lot of different disciplines, artists, you know, sculptors. So I had to change in my way of going to work. Now, I'm getting up at 1030 at night. I'm going to work. On a bike? On a bike.
2: Why not a car?
1: I had to prove that I could get there. on the I, I can ride a bicycle. I rode a bicycle for all the years I was a kid. So I, I used to ride from Riceville to Alexander.
2: You're the original millennial.
1: So so I just had to prove it to myself. It's not like I got to get there.
2: You weren't afraid? It's so late at night in Birmingham, Alabama. They're not exactly really nice to black people down there. Well, I'm a night person. Especially back I actually,
1: then. Yeah, I actually live on both sides of the, the clock. The clock. When I say the clock, I'd rather be up at night doing things when I got myself just alone. I can focus. I'm not interrupted. I think things through.
2: At night, you're a night person.
1: I'm a night person. So I've always been like that.
2: That's nice.
1: And I, I just found a way to channel all of that into, I could do this myself.
2: So you decided to come back to Little Rock.
1: I come Why? back to the rock on the preservation project for the Mosaic Templars Cultural Center. In Not
2: 1984, the, you came back that long ago? Yes. For the Mosaic Templars?
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. See, I started the Mosaic Templars project one year before I left Alabama. I'm still in Birmingham. I'm calling the Preservation Alliance up here. Bill Worthington and people about. What do I do about saving that building? Yeah. My sons, who were still here, were writing me and telling me, Dad, they're cutting the 6:30." across, you know, that ditch thing, tear down the stuff. So they would send me photos. I said, man. So I left in 76. I stayed until 84. I come back about a month and a half before this station went on there.
2: And then you started here as a volunteer.
1: Started as a volunteer. I said, I'll help you out, man, because I know the the demographics, the people. I said, but I don't do top 40 radio. They taught them. Well, we need this. I'm not that guy. So
2: what did you do for a living? Worked where
1: record shops peaches
2: oh peaches <laughs> this is you know, yeah. I, we're just i can't believe we haven't been hanging out from before mm-hmm. this
1: yeah and so they you know they had a chain i also did the same kind of thing in birmingham the chain was in atlanta headquarters
2: so you didn't go back straight into radio you did pretty quick you got a job at kuar didn't you yeah uh, doing uh jazz doing jazz again for them and mm-hmm. you're still doing it i
1: think we're still doing it yeah. so how long
2: have you been doing that 30 years, I guess.
1: Okay, so we've been on the air since 1984. Here, I probably went there in 86.
2: You said about your early days on radio, and I quote, I featured material that you don't hear normally. It was overnight radio that really gave me the opportunity to become a preservationist of sorts, a musicologist, a mixologist, or whatever you want to call it. So when I think of a preservationist, I think of, you know, Buildings. You know, like you'd say, the mosaic tumbler. Are you thinking about music or are you using preservations for buildings too?
1: Everything that is... Old that you want to that's save. That's an art of craft discipline because that's what it is. I mean, it's a it's a, it's a, a vehicle that anybody that wants to dedicate themselves to a specific part of that, you know, you make it work for yourself. It's just your dedication to make it work. So I, I, just, I just embrace it all.
2: Mm-hmm. You, you have a specific... Genre and music you like, and I think it's jazz. Isn't it's that jazz. Right? So you've seen, and you're talking about old school jazz, not Kenny G,
1: not cool jazz, or whatever they call the mm-hmm. stuff there because smooth jazz. Yeah, yeah, smooth jazz. Because if it's not intertwined with the the eras and timelines of jazz itself, the originals. The original, the older musicians don't really accept that as a new genre.
2: That's like country music. There's a old-school country music, and then there's the new country music. And, you know, if you're a purist, you like the old yeah. country
1: music. Mm-hmm. so I became an audio pile purist kind of person.
2: You've seen a lot of changes in radio. What did a studio look like back then when you first started compared to today?
1: This, our studio? No, or?
2: all studios. Did the headsets look like this? Did the boards look like this? Has it gotten, has it changed much?
1: Yeah. The boards didn't have sliders. They had knobs. Turn the volume up, you know, just things like that. They were not composites like these materials are now. They were American-made.
2: Oh, and these are all probably made
1: in- metal. Yeah, these are made everywhere. So when a slider goes out here, you can't repair it. You used to could do that, metal to metal with spray, contact spray, clean it off. If you do that now, it welds together. So you wow. have to buy a whole damn new part. <laughs>
2: that's, that's speaking like an engineer. Plus, we've got audio, uh, We've got call-in. Did you have call-in back then? I think so. Yeah.
1: Hmm. Yeah, we had call-ins. We, we did everything. We did just like we record the, the transmitter reader. We had a phone connected to the transmitter.
2: So it really hasn't changed a lot. Mm-hmm. The industry really is one of the industries that hasn't changed a lot, except for we use computers now. Yeah. Not, you don't have records up here spinning. That has changed.
1: Yeah, that has
0: changed.
2: We found a change. There's no turntables with records spinning, although I bet there are some stations going back to that now.
0: There are. And there's shows here on KBF where the DJs bring turntables Turn in up here.
1: Now. So turntables so are yeah. in here. Rural
0: War
2: Room.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They bring their yeah. own turntables.
2: Who does? A
0: Tuesday night show, Rural War Room.
1: Yeah.
2: Interesting. Mm-hmm.
1: And so we got a turntable set back there, dual turntables, donated they' probably a thousand what's a thousand dollars but we won't put them in here because they would be ripped up the the, the, the rappers doing that man that's hard on equipment so
2: oh I see you doing that is is scratching the record
1: scratching the record that's what it is scratching mm-hmm. the record which I makes thing go down so I would rather <laughs> listen to a scratch on a record that's been played ten thousand times that somebody yeah. really cared about
2: right you know. So, John, you kind of already told us that you came back here to save the Mosaic Templar. I, maybe that's how, why you started your foundation. But tell us how the John Cain Foundation came to be.
1: Okay, first there was a preservation society that did the campaign work for the building. Here's what I was told when I come in: and says, I, as I tried to convince people, come on and help us do this. They say, well, you need a foundation. I said, you got it exactly back of us. We want a society of people. If I'm putting together a foundation, that means i got to buy the building. We can't buy the building. We want the programs and that protocol and procedural stuff that make it, puts it in that perpetuity window. As long as somebody's working on it, state funds it, the building is there.
2: And the building being the Mosaic Templar Mosaic Cultural Templars.
1: Center. Now, the foundation was put together because... In the legislation carrier that made it a, a museum and cultural center, it was a part of the legislation that called the business incubator. Oh,
2: concept. small business incubator. Small
1: business incubator. So that's the foundation's initiative. In other words, we are actually trying to recreate what John Bush and his partner, Mr. Keats, did. In, 19... in, eight, in the 1800s. Eight, late 1800s. Yeah, when that put together. So... We're actually going chapter and verse about, okay, we need to do it as close to...
2: You mean reading the old book that he originally, chapter and verse meaning reading his old book and how he...
1: How, how they put the business together and stuff like oh, that. Oh,
2: you're recreating his vision.
1: Recreating the vision. Oh, so, I love it. So, on the way to getting the building restored, of course, you know, the, the big part was a tragic fire we had which destroyed the original building. That was so much, like that building you got now, I know the, the building. I've been in it a the lot. The Hall. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. I feel things a lot of people never been in it before don't feel. You it's know what very I'm saying, spiritual. Yeah, it, that's what I'm saying. And so to lose that building devastated the society, but we were able to hold it together. The thing that kept it together because we had real historians, real educated people that knew people, taught people, the kids, and they became business people, had businesses on Ninth Street, and... We had a million-dollar policy, Lloyds of London.
2: On the building before it burned. On the building
1: before it burned. So we just call a, made a call meeting, got the legislators together, went to the Rotunda over there and, and asked the governor and legislators, match this for us so we can build a new building. So we went from restoration to a new building. That's what actually happened. And
2: you had feeder money because of your insurance claim. Mm-hmm. Which you probably wouldn't have gotten before.
1: Right. So
2: in some ways it was a blessing, even though you lost the. Yeah, original. we lost a lot.
1: Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
2: Because if you walk upstairs to the Dreamland Ballroom, your skin will crawl. Yeah. The Hair on my arms goes up, mm-hmm. and not everybody does that too. Mm-hmm. But
1: first time we went in the building, we went in with May Construction Company. Which right? building? Uh, Minor years. Uh, the the, the Mosaic Temple building, mm-hmm. the original building. It was dirty. What really prompted me to to start the process was. I knew what went on in that building before I left and went to Birmingham and Atlanta. When I come back, I just took what I knew and started to organize. The reason why, because I worked in the building when they had a machine shop on the first floor down there. Oh,
2: at Mosaic Templars? Yes, I remember that. They had the machine shop. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, the building across the alley from it used to have all of their auto things before auto zone came. Auto parts. Auto parts. And they had them all the way up to the third floor. So we go up and pull orders. They said, oh. you can't go into the, we don't want you on the, on the third floor. We go up to the second floor. So I went up there and saw all of that. It just brought me just straight to the, like the, to Orion Hall. I used to go in there as a kid, go upstairs, the waiters club, late night when all the waiters are. Mm-hmm. That's where it was happening, mm-hmm. the music and stuff. And it just made me really work hard. It took four years now. I after you got the, here
2: after you got the million dollars it took no, four years no.
1: after I come back from Birmingham okay. it took me four years to really organize people so come on and help us that's how we got our 501 C3 we got the right people who wanted to see that happen that's how we did it
2: that takes some organizational skills right there
1: well too. we were timely in that backyard burger wanted to come in from Memphis buy the building tear it down. When they did that, we made a call to action. David Jones with Flake and Company. Mm-hmm. And my gosh, I can't think of his name now, but he worked. Uh, Bill Worthen? Not Bill Worthen. Worked for, uh, he owned the building.
2: Oh, he owned the Mosaic he, he, he actually
1: owned the building. We got a partnership agreement with him and the, bu- and the city to help the society save the building.
2: Well, that was nice of you. So,
1: yeah, so we asked him. We didn't have office space. The city gave us office space at Second at, per, at Markham and Main.
2: Is that the Arkansas Heritage Building? Mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm.
2: Was it the Arkansas? Because I, I know, know the Arkansas. Because I know right now it's it's under your building is
1: in the Department of Heritage. Yes. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, but because your
2: emails say Department of Heritage. Yeah,
1: but there was we didn't have office space. Tommy Jamison was instrumental in that. Once we got the top architect in the state. Yep. Restoration. We felt good about all of these developments. We kind of celebrated amongst ourselves. I mean, there wasn't much you could do. What's next? What's the next thing we do? And that's how we rolled that thing out.
2: Well, organizing people for a building is hard. It's not like you know sick children or starving children, or it's a building with. It's very important to save, but it doesn't. Quite pull at your heartstrings like some other nonprofits do. So I really admire you for doing that. What made you decide to do the John Kane Foundation?
1: Well, the John Kane F- Foundation wants to do this incubator business breakout. So we're developing programs to help start up businesses
2: so That's you can get grants so you had to start a grant. foundation so that you can get grants mm-hmm. you can apply for grants who's doing that are you doing those are you applying for the grants yourself we got or you it.
1: we're we're one c3 and who's official. applying for the
2: grants to start these small businesses well we got a grant writer
1: up? yeah on some specific program things and we're looking at the disadvantaged kids as a way to really in little rock in little rock and the entire state
2: in the state of arkansas yeah
1: as a way to develop programs for, because they don't have opportunities and they're in bad situations. Yeah. And how do you help them? Well, let's get a program in.
2: You know, most of them, a lot of kids, don't realize because I'll do tours sometimes with kids, and one of the things they love to hear about me is that no, is is nobody really has a plan, mm-hmm. and they just they, they can do, they can do it too. I think poverty children have limited have limited visions for themselves they do and when you have a and that's one of the things i love to talk about is you know don't have those limiting thoughts you know you're just as good as everybody else and if you work hard and go to the right places even if you get a job as an engineer you may end up being a radio personality that changes music in america today like you who knew being an engineer and you were going to change the world
1: you know, they can't think like that. They look at things. If, if I had not had good mentors. Your parents. My parents, starting with them, and then meeting other people. I was put in programs as a kid in school. Charles Bussey put me in the junior deputy sheriff program.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I was a junior deputy sheriff and not a Boy Scout. So I actually was the chief of our little junior deputy sheriff in Wrightsville. We come up here to the courthouse once a month, have a meeting in the chambers, whatever person was in there, judge, any legal person. Those mentors just showed me how to pull this this, this stuff I'm reading about civics together, how to do things. So I didn't really ask people a lot of questions. Thought I had it figured out in mind, I would just start.
2: Just start. Just start. That's the key. Just start. If you're laying on the couch, you're never Mm -hmm. gonna start.
1: You're never gonna start. So
2: before we take a break, and then I want to come back and talk about race relations in America—a very sensitive subject—but you and I are friends. This is a safe place. I'm a safe person. You're a safe person. We're gonna we're gonna talk about it. We don't have a lot of time. You were invited to the National Museum of African American History and Culture, and I love their slogan: "A People's Journey, A Nation's Story." Is that not great? Yeah. Did you love going up there? Yeah. It, was it? How would you get invited, just because you're a rock well, star? Well, here's
1: what happened. Working with the University of Central Arkansas, Fine Arts Department, and Annie Abrams, we wanted to celebrate Annie Abrams' birth, birthday, right? She was
2: one of the Central Arkansas men. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Not mine, but School one of nine. the co-
1: commissioners that you know wow. made the thing a, a part, got it into the Wasn't night. she
2: a Central High School one of the nine? Uh-uh. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I thought not, she was.
1: Not Annie. Oh, okay. Annie's uh, about four years older than I am. So it was that thing that got us focused on, okay, they're going to have a real thing. It. We knew that they were working on this building, getting funding for it. It was a long time to make it come to reality. And so we said, okay, let's take a busload of Arkansans up there. We got with Pat Ward, or- Rogers, and... Uh, start organizing, bus trip, you know, lodging, all that stuff. To see the museum itself, I've probably seen more ephemera. That's what they call
2: what exhibit is that? stuff oh. before
1: it becomes.
2: Uh, the, the finished on, display? On,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I've What'd seen you call it? ephemera.
2: Oh, okay. Learned a new word today. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It's not, it's not a historic art, uh, piece yet until it gets in a place to be viewed.
2: Oh, okay. And
1: analyzed up. So that's what they've got in these departments where they keep their artifacts. Okay. It, it's ephemera in the buildings where they store it, it's on exhibit when they bring it out.
2: Oh, nice. Thank you, John, mm-hmm. for educating us.
1: I learned, I learned so much of this. It was incredible. I'm, I never thought I would be learning about preservation, and I was actually doing it. Yeah. It's weird, darling. Okay. Seriously.
2: There's another darling.
1: <laughs> okay. It was it was a it wasn't like it was a crazy weird but I'm in this place where I never really thought I would be. hmm I love just it. Just from what I knew.
2: So we're gonna take the fastest break ever on the planet. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the Cultural Revolution and Mr. John Kane's opinion on the state of affairs of the African-American Community Day. Today, you're listening to Up In Your Business. My guest is the legendary Mr. John Cain, Program Director at KABF Radio in Little Rock, Arkansas.
0: It's patriotic season, and bunting makes a real impression in your neighborhood. It also has practical applications for crowds. By land or by sea, we have all your flag needs covered at theflagandbanner.com, your flag display experts. Open Monday through Friday, 8 to 530, and Saturday, 10 to 4.
2: Terry McCoy, I'm speaking today with KABF's program director, Mr. John Kane. So you've seen a lot. You're like a millennial. You walk everywhere. You ride the bus. You're an 80-year-old millennial. You live downtown. You're living the life that all millennials want to live these days. You've always been hip, darling. Well, thank you. You're welcome. You've always been hip. I mean, you really have.
1: But I learned it from nature, Carrie. I'm a, I'm a naturalist, if you want to call it that, but I grew up in the, what we call the country now. I didn't grow up on a plantation. I didn't. I was poor, but I worked all the time, so I had money in my pocket. My, honest money. Carrie. Honest money. Honest money, I worked for it. I didn't do something crazy just to get it. I had my grandfather as a mentor.
2: Your father Where's your father?
1: He Here. passed in dad passed in 70 1970. My mother passed four years ago, so she lived she died at ninety four. Well how old was she? she oh in ninety four. She was Oh she, she was not
2: she she was ninety four when she passed.
1: So she lived Forty-plus years after my dad passed in 1970. He passed on
2: a stroke. Well, no wonder you got such good genes. I'm a lucky guy. You are. You keep saying that. (laughs) And you just keep saying it, brother, because that's what makes you lucky right there. Okay, I'm going to give a warning. For the next few minutes, you and I are going to have a candid conversation, an uncomfortable conversation for some. So this is a warning to our listeners. But anybody that knows me at all knows that I'm a safe person. This is a safe place this is not to say that everyone has to agree with me or john after all this is america and everybody gets to have their opinion so let's start with what i think is the hardest question first and then we'll lighten up something people don't like to talk about is racism Mm -hmm. and it goes both ways Mm -hmm. i mean behind the taborian hall i found out the hard way i'm the white girl that bought a significantly important african-american building and i almost want to say that it kind of hurts my feelings
1: I wouldn't worry about that you done you're doing the right thing were thank it not you. for you Carrie that building would not be there oh,
2: see that's what I want someone to tell me thank you John you and I are both interviewed in the Dreamland documentary that's airing on PBS and I see you every week at this radio station so we have become friends and sometimes talk and sometimes rant about black and white relations in America today our discussions often end with you saying, we can't forget our history lest we repeat it. And me saying, white people want to quit feeling guilty about what our ancestors did and move on. Can you speak to that?
1: Yeah, I can. Racism is a many-layered thing. It begins with tribalism, which becomes eventually classism. You know, that whole thing of dividing people up so... People want certain things. Once I really got the definition down of what this is, instead of hating, I just decided to embrace everything. The things that I don't like, well, you know, I just get away from it. I want the, I'm looking for the positive.
2: You really are.
1: So rather than, than be fighting with people about my rights, I'm just going to do what I think is the right thing. So I can embrace it all and make a decision that way, not have popular opinion change my way of living. Mm -hmm. When I I say that, I mean, that's why I want to stay close to nature. So when you see me walking down the street, I'm not actually looking for a ride. I'm actually assimilating nature.
2: So don't offer him a ride if you see him.
1: Don't offer me a ride. I'm going to get where I'm going.
2: And live Uh, forever. On a
1: snow day, I might walk three miles to get here when other people can't or won't come. So, it's, I'm 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 driven by nature, really. Mm-hmm. Most people think I'm just being casual about it, mm-hmm. but I'm not. Mm-hmm. I prefer cooking my own organic foods the way I want to eat.
2: And it. he is an 80-year-old millennial. After the 60s and 70s revolution, I think many people thought equality for all at last. I know I felt that way. I know LBJ thought that when he tried to create what he called a great society. LBJ's quote is as follows a great society is to build a great society a place where the meaning of man's life matches the marvels of man's labor you are exactly an example of that because you work hard and you've had a wonderful life but shortly after LBJ passed the 1965 voting rights act became the era of riots and destructions of property by African-Americans on their own business districts and neighborhoods. You were a young man living during that time. It was a little before my time. Can you tell us how you felt and give us your theory on what happened?
1: I was uh, scared about, you know, it happening in my town. When things are, when you're removed from things, Detroit on fire, it wasn't as serious, but although I'm getting friends returning home because... They lost their jobs, they lost things. They wanted, they made a reverse migration. Uh-huh. See, the migration of blacks to the large cities went on for about 70 years. How many years? 70. Yeah. And so when LBJ implemented that policy and, and stuff and, and people didn't get what they wanted, that's when the large cities went on fire. What okay. did they
2: not get that they wanted? I don't know. The, I have no the, idea. The
1: program wasn't implemented immediately. Yeah, he made, they made the legislation happen, but it was 10 years after before a lot of that stuff was actually implemented in the neighborhoods that they were in places where they needed to help people. Oh, really? Yeah. For instance, in 1962, I saw Grambling College football team on TV. That, that was a major breakthrough that marching band.
2: Is that an African-American school?
1: Grambling College. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. In, what, 1962, in 1975, I was calling football for Grambling College on the radio.
2: Oh my gosh, I am gonna rewrite your bio. So I did that
1: about five years. The thing I'm trying to show you is, yeah, he implemented legislation, but it took a while. And so people like me waiting To see this happen, it never happened. I was still doing the same things I wanted to do, just striking out on my own.
2: Were you frustrated? Yeah. But you didn't want to burn your city down.
1: I didn't want to, I never never burned city, never burned, never, never do anything, I did anything that took me on crazy frustrated marches. Now, when ACORN came into being in 1970, I was one of the few people outside of the usual block of on-air people that talked about their programs and stuff. They couldn't get any any help. The local news, TV news, call them that local group. They wouldn't <laughs> identify them as, oh, this, this is an organization out here.
2: And I don't think a lot of people know ACORN. The A originally stood for Arkansas. Yeah. yeah and it became a nationwide program. Nationwide program. Started by, the, started by the same guy that started this radio show.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So to be doing that was, I guess, what I was supposed to be doing. I was supposed to be out there, out in the street, burning buildings. I went on a few marches in Birmingham. But
2: Acorn wasn't just about black people; it was just about, was about poor people, poor people, yeah.
1: marginalized people, losing uh-huh. their housing.
2: Which I guess probably was mostly African Americans, probably.
1: A good part of them. Look at what happened to Ninth Street. Yeah. And it impacted, and then they moved a lot of the people out to the suburbs. That's where they usually wind up. But.
2: Yeah, when I moved down there to Ninth Street, I learned from, you probably know him, Milton Milton Crenshaw? Yeah. He, he mm-hmm. was the first gentleman to come see me. And he took me down and showed me where his building was and where his wife and him had lived and all of that. And he said he lost his business when his customers started shopping on Main Street. He said, I lost all my customers. So after desegregation, I learned from being down there that the African-Americans began to shop on Main Street. The white people decided to do white flight and moved out to the suburbs because the African-Americans were shopping on the main street. And the and then the poor black business district just lost all its customers. Lost
1: all its customers.
2: And folded all across America. Yeah. I don't think people realize that that's what happened to most of these African-American black business districts. I think
1: that was a pushback. Yeah, I think that was a pushback from LBJ's.
2: Uh, well, I think they were just shopping price.
1: Well, that too.
2: I mean, look what Walmart's done to small towns. Yeah. I mean, you come in with a good price. I mean, this mom and pop cannot compete with Walmart. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the African-American stores could compete with the white stores.
1: They couldn't. No.
2: On price. Oh, my gosh. Our time is up. (laughs) Oh, I just noticed. Okay. You have got to come back because I didn't get to a lot. We didn't even talk about the mindset of people today and get your wisdom and advice on what we think you and I can do. You've got to come back. We've got to talk again. You're here, so I'll just get you in your day. And I'm going to rewrite your bio because you don't have enough. You have done so much stuff. So I want to thank you. If you have a great entrepreneurial story you would like to share, I would love to hear from you. Send a brief bio and your contact info to questions at org, and someone will be in touch. And finally, to our listeners, thank you for spending time with me. If you think this program has been about you, you're right but it's also been for me. Thank you for letting me fulfill my destiny. My hope today is that you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening and that it, whatever it is, will help you up your business, your independence, or your life. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up.
1: You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, Go to flagandbanner.com, select Radio Show, and choose today's guest. If you'd like to sponsor this show or any show, contact me, Gray, that's G-R-A-Y, at flagandbanner.com. All interviews are recorded and posted the following week.